If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In March 1942, a group of British commandos embarked on one of the riskiest and most dramatic operations of the Second World War. Their target was a heavily defended dry dock in occupied France and their chief weapon was a destroyer converted into a giant bomb. In his new book, the journalist and author Giles Wattel tells the story of the Saint-Nazaire raid. In his new book, the journalist and author Giles Wattel tells the story of the Saint-Nazaire raid and explains why Britain was prepared to sacrifice hundreds of lives on such a dangerous mission. He spoke to Rob Attar. So Giles, we're talking about Operation Chariot, which, according to the title of your book, was The Greatest Raid. Why do you think it deserves that honour or that title? The short answer is because it achieved its single most important objective. Um, They cleverly narrowed down the list of objectives, primary objectives, to one to avoid what subsequently became known as Mission Creep. Um, and that objective was to destroy or put put out of action this giant dry dock in the port of Saint-Nazaire called the Forme Écluse Joubert, or just the Normandy dock, built for the French transatlantic liner, the Normandy, and the only one on the western, on the Atlantic seaboard big enough for the Tirpitz battleship, which by March 42 was... Hitler's de facto flagship, the Bismarck having sunk, and the Bismarck was the Turpitz's sister ship. So the thinking went um, that if we put that dry dock out of business, then Hitler will not be able to deploy the Turpitz in the Atlantic against the transatlantic convoys, because they knew everybody was learning that modern battleships required extensive repairs basically between every voyage. And so, um, and the sort of the the meat of the story is is legendary, and uh, so I'm uh, uh, spoiler alert here. I'm 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 going to spoil it. They um, filled a destroyer 
with explosives that ca- carefully hid them uh, beneath the forecastle. Um, and the plan was to ram the downstream dock gate with the destroyer, leave it there and have it blow up. And that part of the mission worked. And it worked triumphantly. Uh, the dry dock was put out of action for the entire war. It achieved its goal. Um, and and so in, in very simple to explain terms, and I think the words to explain are important, um, it, 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 it was a success. That I, I concede that that by itself doesn't make it the greatest raid. And that's why the explaining bit comes into it, because it was also a very um, sorely needed piece of good news at pretty much the worst point of the war for, for the Allies. And so at least as important as the actual physical destruction was uh, the fact that at last Churchill and Mountbatten, his head of combined operations, could go to the press with a terrific story saying, we attacked the Germans where they never thought they'd be attacked and we achieved our goal. It was the the, the use of the story, I suppose, uh, that made it more than simply the destruction of a dry dock. It was a great propaganda coup as well. And was that in the in the minds of the planners prior to the raid, as well as the military objective? Did they see this as having potential propaganda value and of bolstering Britain's image as a military power? Absolutely. Um, so th- there were, I suppose, three key audiences. There was the domestic uh, public audience for whom um, Mountbatten insisted that the um, the force commanders take two reporters with them, Gordon Holman and the other whose name I forget immediately, but I'll, I can come back to it, which was unusual for, uh, amongst all the uh, commando raids uh, previously, to have two reporters who took typewriters along with them, um, risking their own lives. I mean, it was miraculous that they both survived, but that was an indication of the importance attached by Mountbatten to this as a story. Um, of course, the the other key audiences were Roosevelt and Stalin. Uh, Roosevelt was extremely anxious that Britain be seen in the continental US to be pulling its weight in the war, to be fighting. Um, Pearl Harbor already happened, but there was the question of of the extent to which America piled resources and and people into the war. And uh, the more uh, Churchill could show that Britain was actually fighting, um, the easier it was to make the case that here was a worthy ally and and, um, um, the US should hold nothing back. And the third audience uh, uh, was was Stalin, who um, had been begging for a second front on in the European war uh, for a long time. Um, Roosevelt and Churchill had denied him one. Um, And so the question then uh, for Stalin, as he soaked up the punishment of um, the uh, German armies on the the Eastern Front, was, well, what are you guys doing on the other end of the Eurasian landmass? And Churchill needed an answer to that too. You've talked about some of the key figures so far, people like Churchill and Mountbatten, who actually originated this idea? Was it one of those, or did it happen further down the chain? Well, the man who um, claimed to have uh, uh, dreamt it up was John Hughes Hallett, who was 
uh, a Navy captain and Mountbatten's head of naval planning at Combined Operations. Mountbatten had not been in the job uh, of head of Combined Operations for long. By As I recall, he took up the job in October 41, uh, having been called back from the States, where he was visiting an aircraft carrier that he hoped he would captain. He had asked for an aircraft carrier and had been given one, and it was being refitted in Norfolk, Virginia. But when he was there, um, he, he was called back uh, urgently to take on this new job and, and given instructions to go on the offensive. And um, uh, so he asked his staff at what was then a, a thinly staffed combined operations for a list of raiding targets. And um, there had already been raids in Norway, but John Hughes Hallett proposed a list of others, including um, including Saint-Nazaire. And there's some controversy as to why. Uh, you know, we've discussed the Tirpitz and the dry dock as the reason for the raid. Uh, I'm inclined to think of it more as a pretext for the raid, and that was certainly how John Hughes Hallett described it in his unpublished memoir, which sits in uh, the archives in uh, Churchill College, Cambridge. Now. And, and he said um, that, uh, in fact, the need to deprive the Tirpitz of a dry dock wasn't the primary reason. He said that they had just um, looked for a list of targets that could be reached within, I think it was um, a day and a night, uh, or with fewer than two nights at sea or something, uh, uh, with a reasonable chance of getting back, and Saint-Nazaire was one of them. It was certainly the most sort of daunting and well-defended. So considering the risks involved and the fact that the Navy had to blow up one of their own ships, was there much opposition to this plan as it was progressing? Yes, um, certainly from the Admiralty. Um, you have to remember that the Army and the Navy were pr- and the Air Force were pretty dismissive of combined operations um, as an institution and thus of the raids that it conducted uh, as well. So the first thing that Mountbatten needed was ships, boats. Uh, he went to the Admiralty. They dragged their feet. Eventually he had to, um, uh, well, John Hughes Hallett had to go over the head of Admiral Sir Charles Forbes, who was Admiral of the Fleet down in Plymouth, to uh, Mountbatten to say, we're not getting the destroyer that we've been promised. Uh, And eventually they got one. Uh, There was a plan which would have been much safer for everyone involved that would have involved two destroyers. The Navy um, vetoed that, even though it was at that point by far the largest Navy in the world, with something like 1,400 ships, excluding 50 Lend-Lease destroyers from the US, of which in the end the Cameltown was one. Uh, I think it's very hard to argue, even though all these all these vessels had roles and, and many of them were not, not appropriate, I think it's very hard to argue that the Navy couldn't have supplied two destroyers if it had been, you know, a willing participant. But it just it just wasn't. And and crucially, I think the record shows, and I haven't done the original work here, a historian called Peter Lush has. Um, nor was the Air Force a willing participant. Churchill insisted from the outset that there be a a diversionary air raid, basically to make sure that the uh, flat guns were pointing up into the sky instead of out over the estuary when the boats came in. Um, And 
all the planning happened in principle, uh, but the um, resources of the Air Force were at that time explicitly mainly at the disposal of Bomber Harris, Bomber Command, um, who was made it very, very clear that he had been told his job was to bomb the heck out of German cities and ports and, and that anything else was gravy, as it were. He had been told to help combined operations as far as possible, but he never got behind um, the raid on Saint-Nazaire. Uh, the number of planes assigned to the diversionary raid wasn't decided until three days before the raid. And there was nearly an almighty screw up in terms of sending the final sort of, I think nowadays you call it a go code, but you know, the, the green light uh, orders to take off. So that it was a matter of hours before the, the pilots actually left from bases all over England uh, in the bombers to that, that they, the, the orders were confirmed. Um, and in the end, that raid simply didn't do uh, the job required of it. And again, there's confusion to this day uh, as to exactly why the, 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 pi- the pilots were told not to drop bombs unless they could see their targets. There was low cloud and none of them could see their targets. So almost none of them dropped any bombs. And in the end, this aroused more suspicion than anything else. And one of the German shore commanders um, duly radioed all his uh, artillery battalions on both sides of the estuary saying, you know, be on the lookout. Um, and uh, the, the pilots had no idea why they had been tasked to fly to Saint-Nazaire um, because of a, an obsession with secrecy. Um, and many of them are said to have wept with frustration when they got back and learned that by failing to drop their bombs, they had jeopardized so many men in small boats below them. And speaking about those men in small boats, I mean, this was such a dangerous raid going into the the heart of the enemy, really. And, you know, other raids like this had terrific casualty numbers. Was it difficult to find people willing to participate in it? No. And this is one of the extraordinary things about the raid, or at least it seemed extraordinary to me, um, until war broke out in Ukraine and you you see people flocking from all corners of the world to fight an evil power, uh, it, it's quite extraordinarily timely that we, we have this, uh, um, I mean, it's very sad, obviously, but um, a very compelling illustration, um, contemporary illustration of how it is that, that people can be positively anxious to risk their lives against an enemy. Um, uh, there was also the boredom factor. So the commandos, 265 of them involved in the raid, had mostly been training for two years uh, with um, endless running up and down Scottish hills, quite a few uh, rumours of um, impending action, many anticlimaxes. And so when uh, rumours came to their training base in Inverilot in in Scotland, uh, that this was the big one, that that this time it really was going to happen. Um, No, to answer your question, um, none of them were reluctant to take part. All of them were desperately anxious to take part. Not all those who wanted to could. Those whom Charles Newman, the commando's commanding officer, um, uh, uh, didn't select were bitterly disappointed and famously 
when they were all offered a chance to withdraw with no blemish to their records, when when told what the operation would involve, none of them withdrew. So uh, it's a combination of um, uh, real uh, appetite to get after the enemy, boredom, pent-up energy, um, and possibly a measure of self-delusion, uh, self-deception, um, because casualty rates in the previous uh, Norwegian raids had not been high. So I, I, I suppose it would have been possible for them to think, we'll get lucky. But um, in terms of brute casualty rates, they didn't. So as you, you said right at the start, the main objective of sending this boat bomb yeah, into San Nazaire, blowing it up. That that did work, but there were other things going on in the raid, and is it fair to say they were less successful? Uh, on balance, yes. Um, so Colonel Charles Newman's um, commandos were divided into three groups. One of them was uh, uh, sent in on the HMS Campbelltown itself, one on a port column of motor launches and one on a starboard column of motor launches and um basically the the ones on the port column were assigned various highly detailed tasks for blowing up bridges and lock gates on the the downstream part of the massive port installations the uh, port column uh, were assigned a series of similar targets, basically ironmongery that they had to blow up further upstream. And the commandos on the Campbelltown itself were ordered to sort of tumble off the bow into the dock area immediately upstream of the dock and take out the pumping station that emptied and uh, filled it and the winding gear at both ends of the dock, 400 yards apart, uh, which made these giant cassoons dock gates roll in and out and i think um it's at a fairly granular level but i think it's a really interesting part of the story that um people say that the best laid plans go wrong but um they didn't all go wrong so the uh missions assigned to the commandos on the campbelltown were carried out almost to the letter and it all worked. And for the first hour of the raid, Newman, who got ashore without a scrape, thought everything was going swimmingly. And so uh, quite spectacularly, um, the, the commandos uh, took out this really heavy-duty pumping station with some extremely heavy equipment uh, in it, um, uh, some of it four floors below ground. And they had to go down and put um, plastic explosives, sort of big plastic explosive sausages on them and um uh despite already being wounded uh having lit their fuses and having only 90 seconds to get back up to street level as it were they managed to do so with seconds to spare and and the whole pumping station just imploded the uh units assigned to take out the winding huts at each end of the lock were equally successful and um a key point there is that the commanders all got there in one piece because they were in this big steel-sided destroyer read any account of of this raid mine or any of the ones that have been written beforehand reading what happened to these motor launches you just despair because 
as you'll know, they were made of wood. They were driven by petrol engines. They were just kindling. They were worse than that. They were explosive. They were just waiting to go up. Uh, They had these extra long-range fuel tanks on the deck, so one piece of incoming munitions would just turn them into a bomb. And and, uh, many of them duly exploded. Four of them overshot. Only two of them, one from each column, got any of their commandos ashore at all. Uh, None of the commandos who got ashore got back to England. Um, those every one of those who got ashore was either killed, wounded, or wounded and taken prisoner. A, a few were not wounded and were taken prisoner, except for five who actually managed to escape and, and walk home. But there's a clear distinction between those who arrived on the Campbelltown, accomplished their missions, um, they were taken prisoner, those who survived, because there was no way home, um, and those who arrived on the launches, um, most of whom um, uh, never got ashore, many of whom perished in horrible fires and explosions, uh, and a few of whom um, eventually got home uh, after their uh, launches were scuttled and they were taken on to destroyers waiting waiting offshore. But um, yes, the the story of um, what the commandos did, uh, having found that there was no ride home, it was the launches that were supposed to provide it, is is a story of heroism, but also, let's face it, of heroic failure. And you mentioned that a few of them made it home kind of over land. I mean, that must have been quite an adventure. They were in the heart of enemy territory. How, how on earth did they manage that? Well, it is an extraordinary part of the story. The default plan... Uh, which they had been warned about, told about, and so it was very simple for Charles Newman to explain when it came to it, was walk to Spain. So there they are, halfway up the the French Atlantic coast. Um, was it 300 miles from the uh, Spanish border in the Pyrenees? 800 miles, I think, or perhaps more like a 1,000 from the nearest properly friendly territory in Gibraltar and occupied territory and Vichy France between them and and safety. Um, So it was never going to be easy, and most of them were apprehended, taken prisoner, and taken off to prisoner war camps. But two groups of two and one other, there's one that I researched fully, um, managed to get out of Saint-Nazaire to the north into what was and remains sort of rough farming country. And by walking during the night and sleeping during the day and enlisting the help of French farming families and the resistance, but mainly just farming families who were minding their own business and were generally aware that something had gone down in Saint-Nazaire, they managed slowly to make their way over the Loire into Vichy, France, down to near Biarritz, over the Pyrenees, and then in the case of George Wheeler, the one who um, wrote the fullest description of, of his escape, um, uh, he went to Barcelona and from there was picked up in a British diplomatic car uh, driven to Madrid and onwards to um, Gibraltar from where he flew home in some style in a flying boat. But yes, heck of an adventure. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Bill Lovegrove realizes that his skipper 
is not on deck, is not in the water, goes back to get him, climbs off the burning wreck with him onto a life raft, and just holds onto him in freezing cold water for the next 12 hours. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And while there were heavy casualties on the British side, it's fair to say there were also a large number of lives lost on the German side, particularly when the Campbelltown did eventually explode. Absolutely. Um, and, and we have to say that by that time, all the um, surviving attackers were dead worried that it was never going to explode. It was at least five hours uh, after the latest time at which any of them thought it would explode, assuming the fuses were working. But yes, when it did, it was what, about um, 10.30 British time, 11.30 uh, local time, and by that time, senior German officers had been on and off, and the fighting had died down. And so a lot of the German dock workers and um, builders from the Todd organization, which had built the giant U-boat pens there, were swarming all over it out of curiosity. And all the, all the um, contemporary French records say that a lot of the German workers had brought wives and or girlfriends, uh, probably all girlfriends rather than and or. And so there was... Uh, there was a whole human crowd on the boat when it went up. And um, the accounts of the debris are quite harrowing. Um, at least 300 dead and human body parts strewn all over the port. Um, there were also German casualties among, among the defenders. Um, the, uh, the, the commandos and the, the naval personnel on the boats took a lot of casualties, but they dished out uh, quite a lot of firepower as well, both from uh, from the vessels and also uh, when they got ashore. There's one particular corporal who went down in history for taking out, I think it was three gun nests all by himself. Now, the numbers are small, um, but it was a great fillip to morale, especially as um, sort of related by the Telegraph's Gordon Holman, because up until that point, and we're nearly well, we're two and a half years into the war, there had been no occasion on which British attacking forces had even even temporarily um, put Germans to flight. And so there was this one moment, I'm not quite answering your question about the German casualties, but there, there was one moment quite soon after the Campbelltown um, rammed the dock when... Uh, a group of just, I think it was two or three uh, commandos, found themselves, um, they'd taken over a a machine gun nest that had been evacuated by its occupants. They saw the the German soldiers who had been manning it running away down the dock. And it was just a a passing moment in the frenzy of battle. But to me, it's really significant because there'd been nothing like that in the war 
on continental Europe until then. That The story had all been one of retreat at Dunkirk, across the fall of France, the sinking of the Lancastria, which had happened nearby in the, in the estuary of the Loire, and endless setbacks all over the world. And this was something different with, as you say, high German casualties. So if this was a real propaganda boost for, for Britain, what was the reaction on the German side? How bad did this go down with Hitler? He was furious. The, the Germans, it should be said, jumped on it for their own propaganda purposes initially. They were right there with camera crews and, and reporters immediately. They were there almost as quickly as military reinforcements from about eight or nine in the morning on the 28th of March, photographing the British wounded, um, trying to get them to to talk, to say more than their name, rank and number, um, and trying to present the whole thing as a, as a failure. And indeed, in the initial German news bulletins, which we should probably call propaganda bulletins, um, they stated, obviously falsely, that the um, Campbelltown had not even reached its target. And then the, ta- then the Campbelltown blew up. And on the 29th, um, reconnaissance spitfires from Cornwall were able to confirm that. Cloud cover had prevented it before that, later in the day on the 28th. And um, uh, it was only then that the British press picked it up as a, a really good story. And there was a press conference attended by 150 or more journalists um, uh, and, and by Rob Ryder, the uh, naval force commander, and Sam Beatty, the, the Campbelltown's captain. Um, and then the German reports had to adjust. They still refused to acknowledge that it was any sort of a, a, a real setback. But then the, the acid test was, as you suggest, Hitler's reaction. And he was both angry and bewildered that his heavily defended U-boat base could have come under attack like this. And he sent a series of high-ranking officers to investigate. Intriguingly, um, heads did not roll. The, the key artillery commanders were actually uh, decorated. Um, none of the uh, U-boat flotilla commanders there were, were punished. In the, in the end, the senior officers who, who were sent there had the backs, as it were, of those who had been caught by surprise. And so then the question is, did the raid achieve another strategic aim by forcing Hitler to divert large numbers of troops to the defence of the Western seaboard? And the answer there is not really. Some, yes. But at that point in the war, he was actually sending very large numbers of troops in all directions. And so it's hard to make the case, I think, that Saint-Nazaire by itself really took the pressure off Stalin, for example. In, um, to the extent it did, it was more symbolic than, than real. So, so with that in mind, do you think it was worth huge casualty numbers on the British side, but you know, on the other side, it achieved its aim and had real propaganda significance? Do you think overall that sacrifice was worth what was achieved? It's a really interesting question because when researching it and writing about it, um, as I say, pre-Ukraine war, and I don't want to overstate the significance of that, but it, I think the context is interesting. I was just uh, researching and writing it, I was really struck and somewhat appalled by Churchill and Matt Batten's willingness 
to expend lives. Hughes Hallett went to uh, Mountbatten quite early in the planning process and said, you do realize if we go ahead with this, we could lose them all. And Mountbatten said, yep, I do. And if that's the cost, we'll have to bear it. Mountbatten, um, a few days later, um, had a chance to talk to Charles Newman before he set off down to, to Falmouth for the last time. And he said, you do realize, basically, worse to the effect that this is not an exercise, this is an, an act of war, and we could lose you all. But um, he said, I'm confident that you'll get in and do the job, but I'm not confident we'll get any of you back. And uh, if you don't come back, then it's just equivalent to the loss of one merchant ship. And again, he said, we have to live with that. And um, Churchill too. And it seemed, it seemed uh, callous and wasteful to me coming fresh to the subject, partly because they had chosen these motor launches, which were so obviously unsuitable. If they were suitable, they'd have stuck with them for D-Day. And it's very, you know, they didn't. They chose steel-sided um, landing craft instead. Um, uh, and this sense of of sending men to their slaughter, uh, I've included a, a few paragraphs comparing it with um, Japanese kamikaze pilots because um, I, I think the comparison is worth making, even though military ethos of the two countries are so very different because in, in the end it amounted to something rather similar but and all said and done was it worth it i actually think it was i, I think there's a there was a tremendous arrogance and heedlessness of real risk on man on manbatten's part um he was glib to the point of insulting and saying it is the fact that this is impossible that will make it possible well, you know, tell that to the mothers of the men involved. Um, but you have to ask yourself if Britain hadn't been mounting this sort of targeted, ambitious, not fooling around raid at this point in the war, what would it have been doing? How 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 would Churchill have been have persuaded both Roosevelt and Stalin that Britain was a worthy ally and um, warranted the dispatch of you know tens of thousands of American men and, and planes and warranted the deaths of tens of thousands of Russians on the Eastern Front. Uh, if, if, if Churchill couldn't show um, that um, there were losses in blood as well as treasure uh, on the British side. I mean, of course, there was the North African campaigns. It's, it's, it's not as if um, the British forces were not active elsewhere, but there, was, there were no successes to speak of. Yeah, well, one thing we haven't talked about is the fall of Singapore just before the raid, which was absolutely catastrophic. And so I think if, if you factor that in as well, that is another reason why certainly to Churchill and Mountbatten, certainly to newspaper editors and readers uh, at the time, it was worth it. And I think looking back, even now, uh, it still was. The only postscript I'd add to that is that if you talk to some of the family members of those who took part, um, who have revered the whole operation for the intervening 80 years, um, they're quite clear-eyed about it. They talk about it as well, one of them said they had no idea what they were doing. Um, uh, it was madness. There has been very little, um, gilding the lily is the wrong term, but um, sugarcoating uh, of the errors 
Um, but I think despite them, on balance, yes, it was worth it. Now, earlier you mentioned um, some learnings from D-Day that took place from this. Uh, how far did this raid influence later amphibious attacks, such as D-Day and, of course, the Dieppe raid that happened not that long afterwards? Well, um, to take the first part of that first, and I will dodge the question by saying uh, I know that it's such a massive story that the logistics and the and the and and the planning, the uh, technical planning for D-Day, I'm out of my depth in that. If all, all, all I can say is that they certainly didn't repeat any of the tactics that they'd used at San Jose. Of course, very different geographies as well for attacking a hardened port and attacking uh, beaches. But I do think that San Nazaire was um, uh, significantly and tragically influential in uh, persuading Mountbatten uh, and and Hughes Hallett, for that matter, that a raid on Dieppe could be successful. It, it wasn't so much a, a technique or a plan that was translated from one to the other. It was this absurdly simplistic notion that if you do something that seems impossible the very fact that it seems impossible will make it possible because you'll take the enemy by surprise. That did work um, to an extent in Saint-Nazaire, but it was a very small mission. The force commanders were obsessed with secrecy. Rob Ryder, the uh, naval force commander, had constructed this entire imaginary uh, world in which the flotilla was an anti-submarine striking force heading for Gibraltar. And that did take people in. They disguised the destroyer as German. That took people in for crucial seconds. They had a Morse signaler on board who who signaled to the shore in German. That took people in for a few more crucial seconds. So they got further up, further up the estuary uh, before all hell broke loose. And every second that they managed to persuade the Germans not to open fire was uh, uh, A, meticulously planned, and B, vital to the mission success such as it was a success. I'm no expert on on Dieppe, but if you read Brian Villa Loring's account of of the raid, in a sense, all the wrong lessons were learned. It's a a debate that rages on to this day, the extent to which success at Saint-Nazaire bred failure in in Dieppe, but I'm inclined to think it did. There were some, like 600 people or more than 600 people who participated in the raid and Obviously, through writing the book, you've researched many of their stories. Did any of any of these men's stories really stand out to you? There were uh, some interesting couples, oddly, that that stood out to me, and these were pairings of officers and enlisted men. in In each case, uh, these sort of privileged sons of aristocracy, their lives were literally saved by incredibly tough men who kept their heads and um and looked out for them when they could easily have slipped beneath the waves or um collapsed i mentioned the case of the pumping station uh the two men who eventually went all the way down there and lit the fuses and came all the way back up were the second lieutenant stuart chant and arthur dockerell who was a former choir boy from ely cathedral and a plumber who was not particularly big or strong, but obviously completely fearless and and very uh, musical. So the story has it, as they walked down these steps in the darkness towards the ground floor of the pumping station, 
it was silent apart from this sort of muffled thudding of explosives at um, four, four floors above them, and apart from him whistling the White Cliffs of Dover. And then um, Stuart Chant had been wounded in the leg and the arm uh, on his getting off the destroyer. Um, and so he was bleeding and he was unsteady and there was no way he was going to get up to safety in 90 seconds on his own. And so they went back up with Dockerell carrying his own backpack, um, Chant's backpack, and Chant just holding onto his belt. And um, he just led him up through the darkness and out of the pumping station within a few seconds of it uh, blowing up behind them. And that that was an extraordinary story to me. And I managed to find Arthur Dockerell's son, Duncan, who still lives, you know, within earshot of the... Um, of the cathedral bells in Ely. And um, that was, that was great. And uh, he, he told stories about uh, how his father went back to plumbing and um, showed me pictures of family gatherings down the decades ever since. And uh, how he was a very calm man, but with his deep, deep inner strength. Um, And then another story uh, that was similarly compelling, I found was that of, um, Mickey Wynne, who was the seventh Baron Nubra with a huge estate in Snowdonia and was a part of the raid because he persuaded Ryder to let him uh, tag along with this very high-powered, very fast torpedo boat, which had initially been designed to take out the uh, Scharnhorst and the Gniezenau uh, battlecruisers in, in Brest, but didn't get the chance to do that because they escaped back to Germany. And so he, he he tagged along. So yeah, long story short, uh, Mickey Wynn and his chief motor mechanic, Bill Lovegrove, get up the estuary, take on board a whole boatload of, of survivors um, and begin their high-speed run to safety. This boat is barely controllable uh, when it only uses a few of its five engines, but when it uses all of them, it can go at about 50 miles an hour. It planes and none of the... Um, None of the artillery could, even with powerful searchlights, could sort of train on it long enough to get an accurate shot in. So it was it was home free, except that then Mickey Wynn saw a couple of what he took to be, and in fact were, British uh, uh, survivors floating on a life raft in the estuary. And he had a moment to think, do I disobey explicit orders and stop to pick them up, or do I carry on? Uh, past them and uh he he couldn't bring himself to carry on past them he stopped he picked them up the boat was blown out of the water um mickey Wynn was blown across the wheelhouse he uh only broke a finger which is very painful but he also had an eyeball knocked out of its socket he was practically unconscious the wheelhouse was on fire uh bill lovegrove realizes that his skipper is not on deck, is not in the water, goes back to get him, climbs off the burning wreck with him onto a life raft and just holds onto him in freezing cold water for the next 12 hours as most of the others on the life raft simply give up. Uh, I, I say, I, I mean, hell, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done anything else but give up. But a, lo- a lot of people simply lost strength and, and disappeared beneath the waves. And, and there, there are heartbreaking stories of 
of well-remembered last lines from from um, soldiers who just ran out of strength and said, that's it, cheerio, I'm off. And, and then they disappeared. And the bodies never found many of them. Um, so those two cases. And then uh, the, the, the third similar case in, in which one of the enlisted men saves a toff, as it were, if you don't mind me putting it like that, happened right at the beginning of the operation when launch 192, which is at the front of the uh, starboard column, hit very early in the action, veers to the left, crosses the path of the whole port column. So you can imagine if you're in the port column thinking, I hope this goes well, oops, it's going really badly from the first few seconds. Um, And this hits the seawall and a fellow called uh, Mickey Byrne, as opposed to Mickey Wynn, is is thrown off and um, he is weighed down by his pack and he is rescued only by um, one of his commandos, a, a corporal, I think it was, Arthur Young. And um, uh, Young has broken his foot, but he just manages, he sort of sat in sort of rocks in the waves at the, at the foot of a jetty to reach down and literally grab Mickey Byrne by his hair and pull him ashore. And you're asking about if there's one character who really stands out, it's Mickey Byrne, because... Um, well, I have one thing in common with him, which is that we both worked for the Times for a long time. Uh, but he had a much more colourful life. He uh, uh, he was a lover of Guy Burgess, the Soviet spy before the war. He was an admirer of Hitler before the war. He, he went to Munich and uh, met Hitler twice. And um, he then saw the error of his ways. He became a very accomplished Times reporter and there's an extraordinary story uh, which unfolded after the war of how he saved Audrey Hepburn's life. But, um, you know, if you wanted to make a movie of this story, you'd make the movie of Mickey Byrne. He's the guy. That was Giles Wattel. The Greatest Raid, Saint Nazaire 1942, the heroic story of Operation Chariot, is out now published by Viking. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt. 